Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, Halloween edition. Happy Halloween, I guess. I, yeah, that's right. It is Halloween as you're listening to this, which either means that you are getting ready and like maybe even wearing your costume to work or it's Wednesday. Like for some people, it is just a day. That would be me. And me, to be honest. I have to say, I've said it already on the site. I need to say it again since today is Halloween. I hate it. I think Halloween is a pain in the ass and I, I don't know how it became such a pain in the ass for adults. I think because people started like upping the game, right? Like people started… Yes. Uh, Name the people who upped the game that oh, well, I can I mean, blame. I, I saw your post, but any people. Like it's, why are we renting costumes? Why are we doing that? The whole point of a Halloween costume is supposed to be that you put something amazing together, um, not that you just go out and rent it. Like my favorite costume, I'm going to describe it to you uh, from my 20s and you tell me who I was, okay. right? I wore jeans okay. and a thick belt mm-hmm. and it was like, it was probably like the mid 2000s. So the jeans were probably like boot cut and cuffed. Fine. And a black t-shirt, plain black t-shirt. Right. And I rolled up a box of cigarettes in the sleeve, right. probably candy cigarettes. And yeah. I wore a toque and I put like a, like a smudgy beard on my face. Who was I? Johnny Depp. Uh, very close. Oh, Skeet Ulrich? Uh, also very close. Okay, <laughs> um, one more detail. Uh-huh. I had a string of condoms coming out the back pocket of my back pocket. Dylan McKay? Uh, uh, <laughs> I was Colin Farrell, obviously. Ah, okay. Obviously. Yeah. Um, it made a little more sense at the time that that was more of a household name. Sure. But isn't that the point of Halloween that you have… A, something that you make up or create or envision in your own home and put it together, not that you rent a thing. Yeah. I just, you know, listen, from a work perspective in entertainment, Halloween has become a celebrity must. You must be seen at either Kate Hudson or the Casamigos party. You must, if you are a daytime talk show host, or on daytime period, have like five or six or 18 or 50 or whatever costume changes. Kelly Ripa, stop this now. Because here's my question. I asked it already, but presumably we do these things for ratings, for the viewers. I have never seen an article And we see articles about ratings all the time. You know, this episode got this many ratings. Have you ever seen a Halloween fucking ratings report? Kelly, Kelly, live with Kelly has record Halloween ratings. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody nobody fucking tunes in. You know what, though? I, I have to because you remember what did used to get big, big ratings was the Halloween episodes of scripted shows. Um, I 
I remember those being kind of marquee events. And so probably it extended. I bet those do get Halloween ratings. If you're one of those people who sees these things, who sees these ratings, like make a fake Gmail. We won't out you. Just send us the information about yeah. why this is a thing um, to, to see these ratings. Because I remember that, that was a big deal to see how you could tart up like, I don't know, um, uh, Becky on Full House or whoever in the Halloween episode. No, nobody cares. I'm convinced because not even Saturday Night Live cares. You remember Saturday Night Live used to always have a Halloween episode? Oh, I don't. Yeah. I mean, that's where some of their classic sketches, Vincent Price or whatever, or I don't know, David S. Pumpkins, yeah, which is that the was Tom Hanks dumb, thing. But yes. Sure. They don't even do a live anymore. Like last weekend, Saturday Night Live was not live. It was an edited package, an edited Halloween package. They don't even fucking care enough to do a brand new episode. So I'm, my question is, why is there so much fucking extra? And I'm obviously saying this because on Wednesday, we're not recording on Wednesday, recording before Wednesday, I will have the craziest, busiest day because I will need to get into several goddamn costumes. And you know, I don't like being away from my computer for very long. And I will have to be away from my computer to get into costume. And I don't care. Okay, okay, well, so basically you're the Halloween Scrooge is what we're saying. I'm, I am. We can, we can create now, like, now I have a pitch for a Hallmark Lifetime movie. Like, there are always those uh, Christmas movies are a big, big ratings hit. Speaking of ratings, anybody you can think of who used to be a star yes. starring in a movie, I definitely know that… Uh, There's Christmas ratings for sure. Oh, yeah, but, there, but Christmas movies are a big, are yep. a big thing. I'm now going to pitch a movie, like, tomorrow called The Halloween Scrooge because you've you've created that. That's a for great me. idea. And I think so. Yes. I thank you for taking inspiration from my fucking Halloween Scroogeness. But and here's the thing, I have great ideas for costumes. But because of my Scroogeness, I never ever follow through on them. Like you know what I was gonna like I was invited to a Halloween party and if I was able to go, I was gonna like be the best thing. It's the 30th anniversary of Louise Brown. Everybody know who Louise Brown is? No, nobody does. I bet you money they don't. <laughs> Louise Brown is the first test tube baby. Which, of course, is not a test tube baby. Like, that right. was what they called her then. She that was, was in... what they called her then. Yeah. So, anyway, that's I was probably, or I was going to be Garfield. 30th anniversary of Garfield is this year. I don't know why I'm caught up on the 30. I don't know why you are either. But our friend, Elle, we won't name her full name in case she doesn't want to be associated with this, probably came up with what I think is the most hilarious Halloween costume, borderline offensive, which... It's the, she was like, wait someone, a minute, like every Halloween, there's 98 Jean Bonnets. Yes. I think the point of Halloween <laughs> is partly to be offensive. Uh, now it is. She was like, someone should dress up in judges robes, um, walk around with a six pack of beer and hold a calendar. I think everybody will. <laughs> I don't think that's a, like if you've I been, haven't seen any of that online. Well, no, because that's not what a, a celebrity is not going to do that. But I bet you it's coming. In fact, I if you see a, I'll say it, if you see a Kavanaugh out there, somebody, please send us the, the picture, the image on Halloween. I guess the idea is it's supposed to be the adult's holiday. Halloween is uh, an occasion for adults in a way that Christmas is not. And you can participate even if you're not in love as per Valentine's Day. That's why adults like Halloween. But I'm with you. I have awesome, like I, every day is Halloween. You're dressing up in a particular image. So fair enough. 
Okay, I'm over. What else did I... I'm over my Halloween rant. Did I miss anything else online today? I was in a room, in a writing room. You're especially early on. Everybody takes real care to never look at their phones and be really focused in the room in the moment. But it means like eight hours of straight talking. So the world could have exploded and I wouldn't know. Anything else exciting that I missed? You must have seen the Jenny Han thread of large and covey costumes. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, yeah. that's cute. Yeah. Um, by all means, be large and covey for Halloween. More importantly, like I can see the dudes who are going to try and be um, Peter Kavinsky for yeah. Halloween. Like, I don't know exactly how you sell that except walking around with like a fake butt and your hand in its pocket. <laughs> see, like to me, I'm not laughing. I didn't find that funny. What? No, I'm a Scrooge. You thought it was so funny. Terrible. That sucked. It was amazing. And what you were going to say is, see, Duanna, you're so creative. And that's what Halloween is supposed to be. Okay. I'm over Halloween. We can't can't talk about it anymore. All right. But now I'm excited because I feel like you're going to have to physically restrain yourself from the segue that is right there uh, to our first topic. What is the segue? So the segue would be, ready? If this is you, you would say, so one person that we won't be seeing in Halloween costume... Uh. Megan Kelly. Probably the biggest news story, entertainment slash news story of the last week. And sometimes don't you feel as though there could be other stories, but people are actually holding back because they're enjoying watching this play out for so long? And I think that we're going to probably be hearing more details for months. So for the uninitiated, or if you were on vacation last week, it was about Halloween. uh, So the segue was going to be there anyway. Uh, Last Wednesday, Megyn Kelly on her show was talking about, uh, so last Tuesday on her show, Megyn Kelly uh, and the the panel were talking about Halloween costumes and of course the concept, and of course the conversation about cultural appropriation that comes up every Halloween came up. And of course, there are always people, guess who, old white people going, but but why? But why can't I? Uh, and so Megyn Kelly decided to be that person. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't understand. We used to do all of I don't understand. We used to do it all the time as a costume. Is it wrong? Doing it all the time. She was referring to blackface. Correct. And they were using that word on the air. That's not okay. Uh, and she was like, I don't, why not? Why, why shouldn't we? And then, of course, the next day after intense criticism and people letting her know that how do you not know at this point, not just because you are of a certain age, not just because you live in New York City, not just because you are allegedly a journalist, but because of all of the above, how could you not know? How could you not know that... In extreme short form, to be black or any other race is not a costume. You don't get to put it on and off. And if you are going to be the annoying person who's like, but my kid loves Black Panther, they can love the superhero and be the person and nobody needs to paint their face Mm -hmm. to look like a person of another race. So the next day she apologizes, almost in tears. And she had previously sent out an apology to her staff internally that was uh, basically said, I'm still learning and I guess I was wrong. And after that apology and after that episode, she did not return uh, Thursday and Friday. And then of course there was all kinds of rumors, all kinds of reporting that she was getting canned, 
that NBC was done with her, that they were shutting her down. They did confirm that the show was over. And at this point, at the time of this recording, they're still negotiating her exit, i.e. how much she will get paid, what her compensation will be, because there were still two years left on the contract. Some numbers have been tossed around. Some are saying $69 million. Some are saying $50 million. You mean that that is what she will walk away with? Out of the payout from the original deal. I mean, I'm not sure how accurate any of these figures are, but her attorney has spoken, I think, to People Magazine saying that we are still negotiating. So it's she's still technically an employee of NBC. However, what they're working on is how much will it cost, if anything, for her not to be an employee of NBC anymore. That's where we are, and that is the conversation. How did we get here? Where are we going? Like, the the interesting thing, of course, is that the contract is even in debate, right? Like, most people, if you get fired, you get fired. But often in contracts like this, there's going to be a pay-or-play deal, which means either you let me play for three years or whatever the duration of the contract is, or you pay me out. So there are lawyers going to be working on both sides going, she violated this aspect of her contract. She didn't do that. But ultimately, she's going to walk away with a lot of money, as you say. That's right. Just like whatever, Matt Lauer walked away with a lot of money. That's right. Right? So the Hollywood Reporter published an opinion piece, um, and it listed the four things that Andy Lack, who is the head of NBC News, who brought on Megyn Kelly, the four things that he got wrong. When he hired her the first place, uh, not in the, not in the handling of this situation, but in the first place. Because of course, this is not like the first issue or problem that Megyn Kelly has had. No, it isn't. And this is not the place for us to talk about blackface. I mean, this is show your work. We have both established that we are offended by blackface, and it's wrong. What we're talking about here are the not-so-great work steps that have brought us to this place and probably the not-so-great work things that are going on right now in in making this change. Right. So, yeah, if you think that Megyn Kelly was always going to be a ticking time bomb and that this was always going to be a problem that might have happened, uh, it might have happened because, according to The Hollywood Reporter, Andy Lack made these four incorrect assumptions, basically, is a way to put it, right? That's right. So number one, they say, that the star power of a celebrity journalist would deliver a jolt of popularity that would increase audience ratings. I feel like this could be a fair assumption. We've talked on Show Your Work before about the morning show Wars and about that great book, Top of the Morning, which I love, which I'm due for a reread of, but the competition is fierce. They are always jockeying for number one. And in a different situation with a different celebrity journalist, I can see where this would be a real big injection, a real big ratings injection. And I'm sure there was a modest bump originally. Well, when we talked about Megyn Kelly before, it was just as she was beginning this move And frankly, while we weren't speaking on Megyn Kelly's character, we were talking about this as a business move, as a stunt, if you will, and assessing its stuntability, its viability as a stunt. At the beginning, I mean, it's easy to say now, but at the beginning, Andy Lack probably had some reason to believe that as far as stunts go, it would work. There was curiosity there. 
Yeah, and I don't think that is crazy. Like, yeah, she was polarizing, um, and she was a bit of a star. People liked watching her, and she had come through a really high-profile kind of on-air conflict with Donald Trump, and everybody hated him, which swayed everybody into her corner. Uh, And to be clear, this is an episode of Show Your Work that aired in late January of 2017 when Megyn Kelly was first starting on the Today Show, where we discussed this quite a bit. So yeah, I don't think it's that crazy an assumption. And if you told me tomorrow Anderson Cooper was going to do a morning show, or uh, who else is left in celebrity journalism? (laughs) I don't know. Like, I guess you could ask Ann Curry to come back. (laughs) I mean, yeah, somewhere and if there's is, a stunt to yeah, be made somewhere and Curry is rubbing her fingers together, but there's no up and coming young journalist who is on the news and a viable next person uh, who's a star already. Not in the same way. Okay. But let me ask you this, even though it's impossible to look into the future into a crystal ball and be like, well, Andy Lack wouldn't have known this would happen. People would say, well, why wouldn't he have known? When she was on Fox News, she had already been using this kind of language. She's already the kind of person who was like, don't talk to me about Santa Claus being anything other than white. There were other racially inflammatory statements. So sooner or later, isn't this what you bought? Oh, absolutely. And I think that I, look, I have not been watching the Megyn Kelly hour on the Today Show, but I suspect it's been there in other forms before now. But like, yeah, I think this is what you bought. And I think that's what they wanted, which is to say that if your comment section on social media is on fire because of something that she said, and everybody's going to tune in to watch the next day, if it's something that is not as black and white, pardon the pun, as this conversation, that probably is good for ratings. So I can see him going like, yeah, like all news is good news. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no such thing as bad press that, yeah, this is what he bought and probably what he wanted on some level. Okay. So moving on to point number two, Mm -hmm. point number two, that today NBC's four-hour flagship morning program would be improved by the injection of a single personality at its halfway point. Right. Because, of course, the permutation of the Today Show, or today, I guess as it's now called, has uh, various forms in, has various forms in each hour, right? So the, it starts with now Savannah and Hoda, and then moves to I guess, Megyn Kelly, and then there was the the old Hoda and Kathy Lee hour. Like, we all know this, that this was how it would be. But that, I guess, yeah, so the question is that he felt it would be improved by the injection with one person, as opposed to the pairings that work in each other hour, right? Right. So, clearly, this is about chemistry. Interesting. I mean, she, it's not about chemistry in the sense that she didn't not have chemistry with somebody. You mentioned Ann Curry. Yeah. And the argument for her dismissal is that she never blended with Matt Lauer, right? Which, again, Megan Keller, which, again, Ann Curry is somewhere at home laughing her ass off about all of this. It's okay, Ann Curry. Like, you're only human. You're allowed to have a little bit of schadenfreude. Yeah. But chemistry with who, I guess, is the question. 
because Megyn Kelly didn't have to have chemistry with anyone? Or is your kind of thesis that because there was nobody to soften her, there was no softening the aggression that she was? Well, you mentioned top of the morning. Right. And one of the things that uh, one of the things that's discussed in top of the morning about this very specific niche of morning TV is that, and I don't know if this expression came from that book or from one of my friends, but it has to feel like a hug. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. we talked about this the last time we talked about Megyn Kelly. And for it to feel like a hug, you have to believe, at the very least, that the people you're watching on TV like each other or pretend to like each other so convincingly that it's a little bit of a little family. Because you're letting them into your home, very likely into your kitchen as you're it's making breakfast. It's not just that. You're starting your day yeah, with them absolutely. in your home. It's mm-hmm. not like 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. It's the first thing that happens when you wake up, you switch it on, or in the past. Like, that's the model, right? You get up, you switch it on, you're making your coffee, as you said, you're about to have breakfast. This is setting the tone for your day. A lot of people don't want to set the tone without the hug. Sure. And setting the tone for your whole family's day, you know, it's always the shot you'd see would be people pouring orange juice as if people still drink orange juice yes. for their children who are sitting at the breakfast bar while they're checking in on the Today Show. That's right. So when you discuss chemistry, Sure, she never had chemistry or wasn't required to have chemistry, but that in and of itself is chemistry because you've got the other people who occupy the previous hours laughing together, inside joking together, teasing each other, and then she comes on and it's so removed. It's like, hey, this show has the same name and it is the fourth hour or whatever, the third hour, the fourth hour, fourth hour of the show with the same name, and yet... Nothing about you guys having the same name, last name, says to me that this is a family. Right. And that is fair because the tone totally changes. You know, there are people who believe, if you talk about uh, scripted TV, for example, there are people who believe that they can tell when a particular writer writes an episode of the show, even though it's all the same actors and same sets, that you can feel a tonal shift. So even though she's under the same brand, you can feel the tonal shift. Now, again, I don't want to be in the position of defending Megyn Kelly, but without knowing what the conversations were about the creative direction of her hour, I think we come back to, isn't that what you bought? Like she was doing what she had been hired to do and what she'd worked out her brand as up to this point. Well, yes and no in that 100% Megyn Kelly must bear responsibility for the things that she said. A hundred percent. I don't want to be in that position of not saying that. That's right. However, our discussion here is about management and about business decisions that may have been bad or good. Some looked good from the start, but you can make a business decision and then mishandle it. So when they decided to bring Megyn Kelly on, Tamron Hall and Al Roker were removed from that hour. Immediately, Tamron said, I'm out of here. I don't want to be treated like this. Clearly, I don't mean anything to you guys. She was out. Al decided to stay. He's been there for fucking ever. Yeah, of course. Um, and he, it was described as he was gracious about it, but not happy about it. Of course. Understandably. So you already have a chemistry problem. You're bringing in somebody and demoting somebody else. So there's a morale problem to That's begin right. with. Yeah. There's a morale problem to begin with. Who's that on? Obviously them, right? That's mismanagement and mishandling. 
Right. And the article goes on to explain that the that sort of two high-profile people, that teamwork thing that had worked in each permutation of the other hour, yeah. not only allows for good chemistry, but it allowed for the show to change. When Meredith Vieira is like, I'm going to leave, I'm tired, or whatever, then you can bring in somebody else without changing the whole fabric of the whole show that if, I don't know, Al Roker had decided to retire when mm-hmm. he and Tamron Hall were still on, that you could bring in somebody else and still feel like there was somebody carrying the torch for yeah. that segment. But because she's alone by herself, A, there's nobody mitigating her. Yeah. And B, if she does leave, which, spoiler, it's happening, um, then that tone is now, there's a hole there that you can't fix from somebody else carrying the torch. That's right. And we saw that, not to belabor the point, when Matt Lauer was dismissed and it was arguably the greatest crisis that today would have had to deal with. Yeah. Um, you saw Savannah Guthrie suddenly be joined by Hoda Kotb and it felt very warm and familial that even though it was this terrible time, you saw them visually kind of coming together to save their show and their work and their work family. Yeah. And this is the antithesis of that. Correct. So point number three that a hard news weekly magazine is a viable format for broadcast television primetime programming. What's interesting is that broadcast television primetime programming is not the way that I originally read that sentence. I originally read it as uh, that a hard news weekly magazine is a viable format in the morning, to which I would have been like, yes, of course, no, there's nothing to do with that. It doesn't fit there. But that's not what they're saying. They're actually pointing out that you know, she was meant to have a, a like a gateway into being on NBC primetime, right? Like yeah. having her on today was meant to familiarize her to viewers. Well, they say later that it was supposed to be a way of like getting her launched into a situation where they could compete with a show that was their version of 60 Minutes. Right, exactly. Um but that she was sort of being training wheels into the network, essentially. And this is where, you know, neither you nor I as a scholar of hard news per se, and this is where, despite neither you nor I being hard news scholars, we're big fans of these programs, right? Of the 60 Minuteses and the 2020s and the Primetime Lives. Remember, like, (laughs) God, I loved Primetime Live. Um, And in the time since they hired Megyn Kelly, all those shows have kind of gone away from what they were, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've changed their DNA fundamentally. So they were kind of chasing a, a dead horse, I yeah. guess, to mix a metaphor. Like there is only one 60 Minutes. Um, and I'm not sure you can create it with and around Megyn Kelly. Well, this is what it all comes back to, right? Like it's... The brand 60 Minutes is bigger than any of the people on it, as is Primetime Live or 2020. Like, I can recite some of the anchors I watched growing up, but they weren't the brand. And all of this was based around making Megyn Kelly essentially into Katie Couric, right? Or making her into Joan London or almost Oprah, right? Like, they were getting to the point where they thought she was going to be a one-name 
ratings juggernaut. Which is kind of the, uh, to your point, the antithesis of 60 Minutes. I mean, those journalists on 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl, for example, they're known names, but they're not superstars. No, and they right? w- and they would consider themselves to be news journalists first and foremost who sometimes did television reporting. But they're not personalities. No, exactly. Yeah. There's You're never going to see them. Leslie Stahl is never doing a segment in the kitchen. Christiana Amanpour would rather die. Yes. Then, like, do a segment with Martha Stewart. We concede that point. Yeah. And yeah. just to underscore it, uh, The Hollywood Reporter points out that uh, Dateline and 2020 have long since abandoned the magazine format for documentary-style true crime reenactment. These narratives are a cost-effective use of a news division's talent and resources. However, they do not require a figurehead anchor who prides herself on her hard-edged questioning style and hard-to-obtain sit-downs with controversial interview guests. There is no way that Kelly could use this format to fulfill her ambition to be her generation's Diane Sawyer. Correct. Is it correct? Like, I mean, is, at this point, we're we're 75% of the way through the points. Is that correct? Or was there a mismanagement here? Could she have become someone else if there had been a different management style or a different brand or Megan Kelly never could, even if somebody else could. Well, it depends. I mean, you're the key word that I'm latching on that you just said is brand. Right. So yes, 100% a network manages a brand of a show, mm-hmm. but you have immediately a conflicting situation there because as we just said, a show's brand is not ever superseded by a personality's brand. Because then it's the personality, right? right? The exception that proves the rule, of course, is Oprah. And even Oprah now does some of those sit-down interviews that we heard talking about. For 60 Minutes. Yeah, Yeah. or for whomever, because she can. Because you can swoop in, be that twice a year, and get back out again. You don't need somebody doing it every week unless they are semi-anonymous. Remember they used to say sometimes like, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so is on assignment. Yes. Because the idea was they're gone, we're all a team, you can get any one of us and be happy. That's right. And remember, if when 60 Minutes gets Oprah, it doesn't change its name from like 60 Minutes to Oprah Minutes. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And she's on for like a third. Like if you watch 60 Minutes, is usually three stories or three and a half stories, mm-hmm. right? And she gets one of those stories, but two of the other stories are still your standard 60-minute stories. It's not a full hour of a Megyn Kelly-style report. And if you don't like it, she will be gone next week. That's right. right? If the show is called Investigations with Megyn Kelly, she's going to keep being there. So if it's not your style, yeah. it you would be more likely to tune out. So I guess to your point, is it a management mismanagement issue? Sure. As this article or this opinion piece by Andrew Tyndall says, this is a miscalculation. Right. That maybe we only appreciate in hindsight, but that's the point of business. Right. And I just want to be clear that, again, for the 98th time, I don't agree with the things Megyn Kelly said last week or in the past. This is far from the most offensive things she's ever said. But she was hired to be herself. It's not as though she demanded call the show after me. And they were like, oh no, our authentic news show will be tainted by this blonde woman. They were like, hell yes, we will. 
because that's what they thought they were buying. No, what we're trying to say is that 100% she is to blame, but she's not the only person to blame. By any means. Lots of people are, I mean, she was put on the air for a reason and given a platform to say those offensive things for a reason. And they all come into play kind of in point number four. Which is? That the skills in television journalism that thrive in the militantly ideological niche-targeted setting of Fox News Channel are transferable to the partisan-averse mass-market mentality of the mainstream media. Boom. Basically, the idea that you can do what you were doing on a fringe network, change nothing because that's your brand and that's what you grew and what made you a star, and then come and do it in the exact opposite location, the, the idea that that will work the same way is, is nonsense, right? Well, and that's where I go back to our work and our podcast on this, because I'm not sure that we fully appreciated that. No, I think that's fair. When we talked about Megyn Kelly in this context, I think we thought, who could she be if she didn't have to be kind of a a troll, essentially? Yeah. Who could she be if she had more opportunity to be warm or talk about her kids mm-hmm. or whatever else? And we were anticipating that, or we were curious about that. Will we see Megyn Kelly become a hug? Right. And we were incorrect. Yes. Um, whether they tried it and it didn't work on the two episodes there where they tried that or whether she said absolutely not, that's not what happened, right? She continued to be the same Fox News Megyn Kelly just to a bigger audience who didn't welcome it because, to your point, it was not a hug. I think one of the things that we were hung up on, or at least I was hung up on, in having the Megyn Kelly conversation a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, was that... We wondered, or I wondered, if morning TV had to remain in hug format, whether or not it could evolve, whether a woman who wasn't warm and fuzzy, um, who wasn't sweetness, who wasn't Katie Curry could succeed. Because of course, and she was not the right person to hang the debate on. But of course, as we talk about different roles and different attributes that women should be allowed to convey in all forms of entertainment and culture, that would have been some sort of progress putting aside who we're talking about. Can we wake up with a woman who isn't like super, super soft and sweet? Well, again, I think part of the reason that we thought that was viable is because of the world we had been living in at the time. Yeah. That podcast that we're talking about went live on January 23rd, 2017, which, if I understand correctly, meant Donald Trump had been officially in office for 13 days. Mm -hmm. How little we knew. Yeah. People need more hugs than ever. Yeah. Not to be cutesy about it, but, you know, if we were living in a time of relative stability and relative calm uh, in terms of America's and North America's place in the world and what the fuck was happening at any given time, maybe that level of aggression would be okay and maybe there wouldn't be such divisiveness to dig into. Like, maybe she would have had to work a little harder to find the divisive topics or would have found more common ground with people 
if we weren't living in the dumpster fire that we are now. Yeah. But this is where we are today. And this is where I think this is the work of news networks all the time and entertainment networks and all, as you say, sort of cultural institutions. You know, sometimes in any industry, uh, a manager or someone will say, it's it's a great idea, but it's not the right time. Mm-hmm. This may have been an experiment that could have worked, but this could not be less the right time for this experiment. I also think that for me personally, over the last especially year or two, I have learned a lot and some of learning is unlearning. And we've talked about who we give opportunities to, who deserves opportunities, and where we look for opportunities. And there are two things I want to say here. Who said that thing where when someone shows you who they are, believe it? I want to say it was Maya Angelou. Yeah. That's one thing where Megyn Kelly is concerned. But another area where I, I want to like have more reflection and unlearning is I don't want to minimize the fact that this time slot was taken away from two people of color. Mm-hmm. Tamron mm-hmm. and Al. Like, I know them personally, but I think that's the point of morning television is that you refer to them by first name. And Megan Kelly replaced them. Megan Kelly is now gone. So is Tamron. But Al has returned to that time slot, joined by Hoda and Craig Melvin. Mm-hmm. That just happened today. Today is October 29th, as we're recording this, Monday. And that is a full persons of color panel. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if at the time that consideration was thought about. No, absolutely not. And all of us, like in having that conversation, like I don't know that we placed enough emphasis on that part. And I don't think that it would have been not considered, but what they would have been told, if you're in the HR meeting with with Tamron and Al, they would have been told, guys, it's a tough time. We just, we really need the ratings. We really have to give it a jolt. And we think this is the way to do it. Thank you. We love you. Blah, blah. All that garbage. Right? Yep. And nobody in that situation would have said, it's because there are two people of color on this fourth hour slot. Nobody would have said that. Nobody would have thought that. I don't believe that for a minute. But the optics are still the optics, right? That they were removed so that a blonde woman could have her day. Mm-hmm. And again, like it's maybe everybody is a better person than I, but I'm sure there's some schadenfreude happening in, in their private minds as well right now. Yeah. But... I think to your point, it was that thing that was said, that is said, uh, that you and I talked about a lot around the casting or before the casting of Crazy Rich Asians, is that it would have, you know, if somebody said, well, guys, it looks a bit poor that we're losing two people of color to put in a white blonde woman. And the response would have been, yeah, but Megyn Kelly gets X number of viewers a, a month, a week, or whatever. Show me a person of color who gets those numbers and I'll put them on. I guarantee you somebody said that. And of course, there isn't somebody who gets those numbers, sing it with me, because they haven't had the opportunity to do so. Yeah. 
So it's one of those echo chamber things that feels true and isn't true. I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say when it came to learning and unlearning and that kind of thing, that, you know, it's a lesson that I feel like we need to learn over and over again. The language that was used to describe Megyn Kelly all this time was like uh, fearless and hard-hitting and uh, and tough and unafraid. And that is all grown-up language to describe kind of a, a keener, right? Like a grown-up, uh, hand-waving-in-the-air person who knows it all keener. Paris. Geller. <laughs> I'm not sure whether to kiss you or, like, <laughs> tell you to bite your tongue before we are smote, that you would... Mention Megyn Kelly and Paris Geller in the same breath. But yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's that lesson that we learn over and over again, that being that person, the toughest, the hardest, the work hardiest, is not all there is to it. You can be the person who is the quickest and the first in the office in the morning and the last at night and the whole thing. It's not all there is to success at work. And even if you tick every ostensible box on the HR list, it's not always going to translate to success because there's an X factor or a Q factor, if you prefer. What is Q factor? It's that like intangible, the like, like, yeah, it's that popularity. I mean, we should just pick an initial for it and go with it. Yeah. But yes. Well, this is not all of the conversation because… Just quickly on background, there are some who believe that NBC used this as an excuse, this blackface situation as an excuse to get rid of Megyn Kelly because number one, her ratings weren't great and because she was disruptive behind the scenes in pushing Me Too and calling for an investigation into the entire Matt Lauer situation and allegations of sexual harassment at NBC. Um, That has played out in this negotiation of her exit because The Hollywood Reporter, just as we started recording, posted an update to her, um, her NBC, uh, her exit talks with NBC. And one of the sticking points, according to sources of The Hollywood Reporter, um, is that she is resisting an NDA. Ooh, interesting. So, of course, NDAs were part of the conversation when the Harvey Weinstein situation broke last year, that he required people to sign NDAs, that part of the function of an NDA is to continue to silence women, not, you know, allow them to have their say. Megan was very, very vocal about Me Too and trying to bring down and address sexual harassment. And so the fact that this NDA has become now a question mark around her negotiation is going to be quite interesting. She is not the kind of person who would want to shut the fuck up. And the other thing that's interesting about that, two interesting things, uh, that, of course, Megyn Kelly was actually in the midst of a shift in agencies when this all happened. She was actually in the final stages of shifting from, I believe, from WME to UTA, two of the biggest talent agencies in the business. But when this all broke, UTA, of course, was like, just kidding, don't want you after all. So she is represented by her lawyers, but 
not, uh, you know, who will be less concerned about her ongoing career prospects than an agency would and might, so this fight might play out differently than it would. The other thing that's interesting about that, of course, is she may be doing something good even in her embarrassing exit if she's fighting against an NDA. It would be so easy for all of us if everyone was all bad or all good, right? If the if we had good people and bad people, things would be easy. But to learn that she is fighting against NDAs, which yes, can be really, really stifling and difficult uh, for women and men who want to talk about all kinds of problems at all kinds of workplace cultures, is arguably a good thing, that it's coming from somebody who we are relatively happy to see is not having a platform like this. It's a, it's a, it's one of those, it's a tricky kind of thing to parse, you know, because it would be easier if good people were doing that and bad people were leaving and there was no good about it. But, uh, but it's an interesting time that we live in where you kind of get what you get when you get it. Well, let's be clear just because I know that some people listening to this will want to make the assumption that we are defending Megyn Kelly's statements, inflammatory, provocative, offensive, horrible statements about race and culture. That is one thing. And you guys know us better than that. Let's be clear. Yeah, but That said, if she fucks up and she gets fired, if you're the company and you believe in the reason why you're firing her… Why do you need to not let her talk about why she was fired? Because they're going to say she would have been privy to, you know, uh, information that could be damaging to our us or our competition or whatever. That's She will definitely have a non-compete clause in her contract, so she can't get a new job and share anything like that anytime soon. But that will be the argument. And, like, look, you can believe that Megyn Kelly is fundamentally horrible or at least uh, espouses fundamentally horrible beliefs on television and still think that she was mismanaged in that if somebody said, Hey, come over here and say your horrible views for millions of dollars. And then said, no, actually we're kidding. Get out of here for saying those things that we called you for that. That is an issue of arguable mismanagement. Yes. And on the show, your work tip, she's lost her job. I don't feel bad for her. No. That's Um, a natural consequence. That said, the people who made bad decisions in bringing her on, they still have their job. For now. For now. Now, if you're a CEO or the head of a whatever division and you brought on somebody who turned out to be a disaster, if we're talking about work, you did shitty work. Right. And you need to pivot and improve. Again, if of anything, like ironically, the Today Show will probably get a ratings bump here. Well, the, ironically, they did shitty work on top of shitty work. Like you enabled, a lot of these same people enabled Matt Lauer. Of course. And so for decades. It hasn't even been a fucking year. Right. Since Matt Lauer was exposed. Right. So on the heels of that, not even a year later, we now know that you did shitty work again. Right. But... This is the thing about television as it is the thing in sales or whatever. In sales, all that really matters is the numbers. And in television, what matters is the ratings because those are sales when all is said and done. They may get a ratings bump here 
They will get an artificial lift. How they pivot from it and what they do is the next at-bat. We talked about at-bats a couple of weeks ago, getting another chance to do some work. So how they pivot out of this will be the question. I think you will quietly see that some people are stepping down at the end of the fiscal year or the calendar year, but it will be interesting to see what they do next and whether what they fill with is more of the same and then they get restless in a year and do another shakeup or whether there's a real move to something new. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, next. Um, I love the next story that you pitched. I love it because it's inside baseball in the world and work of entertainment. Right. But there are a lot of real-world takeaways that, you know, we can extrapolate from this. And it's a Fast Company article. The title is The Death of Hollywood's Middle Class, How Netflix and the Streaming Wars Are Creating Massive Income Inequality in the Entertainment Industry. Right. So, in short, you know, everybody has heard the expression peak TV. There's more TV to watch now than ever before. And so… The presumption is that it means that there are more jobs than ever before, and people must be working more and doing better. This article kind of dispels that debatable fallacy in that, especially, my I zoned in, like this is about actors too, but a lot of the focus is about TV writers. Sure. You. What is your job? Yeah. Which is what I love about it. Um, and this is Inside Baseball on the life of the middle-class TV writer um, about how even though there's been an explosion of streaming content and new content, it's harder and harder for the middle-class TV writer. Let's go through some of the points of why. Sure. I in, mean, yeah. you know I'm always happy to talk about myself, either in the first yep. or the third person, but yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, too, the reason why this is so interesting inside baseball for us as consumers of content is because sometimes we don't know what our appetites, the consequences they are creating. Sure. Or, or care. Let's or, be honest. Or right? care. Like uh, entertainment is meant to entertain and divert. And for a small group of people, it's also their livelihood. But I understand that for a lot of people, it's just, it's just there to be an entertainment Full well, stop. if you're listening to this podcast, we're going to assume that you do care. Absolutely. Because what we do is inside baseball. So in the past, in the distant past, TV shows used to be 22 to 24 episodes. At least. At least on network TV. That's right. And uh, they would provide these writers with essentially a year-ish long job, right? 100%. So loosely speaking, uh, there was a writing cycle that still exists but has been a very fractured. If you got a job on a show… You would start on that show first week of June, and you would write all the way through probably to, let's call it the end of January or February, depending on how long the order was. And then there would be a hiatus, uh, and either your show is coming back, so you take a vacation, 
or maybe you write a movie if that's your ambition, or you go looking for a new job if your show is going to be canceled. Right. And then the cycle begins again. That's right. And in the past, you'd get, if that show was successful, residuals because that show would go into syndication. Uh, Yeah. It's different in Canada or the UK or the US, but basically a show can go into syndication if there are a hundred half hours, which if you believe in a 22 episode order, that would be after say five seasons of Full House, just to reference that twice in an episode, uh, or 65 hours. So three and change years of an hour long show. Right. So up until then, you would not get residuals because there aren't likely to be repeat airings. When there are new episodes of Scandal, they're not repeating anywhere else. But mm-hmm. once it's sold into syndication, then they start stripping, you know, remember when you'd come home from school and Who's the yeah. Boss was airing every yeah. day of the week? That's where the massive residuals happen. Well, that's a good example because in the distant past, mm-hmm. when by and large the three networks were producing TV, mm-hmm. more shows had a chance of going more seasons. Like… You know, we remember shows like oh, Distant, Distant, Distance, MASH, or like Seinfeld, or Friends. Like, those shows went more than five seasons. Easily. Easily. And the residuals that you get as a performer or a writer, and the number of times that that show repeats on air in a million different territories, and I say that literally, probably not a million, but yeah. sold to hundreds of countries who each are streaming it on Poland TV or, you know, Sudan Express uh, are all paying into those residuals. Now, present, we cut to the present. Yeah. A lot of your faves out there, I mean, a lot of you don't even have cable or like conventional TV anymore. You're watching Netflix or Amazon or whatever. Most of these shows, I mean, the max episode order is about 13. And 13 is the high end. 13 is almost extinct now. That's right. 13 is the high end. So you're looking at 8 to 10. Some some shows are like 6. Yeah. And that has often been a British model. British shows have had shorter runs earlier. Uh, miniseries, as they were then known, uh, would be a shorter order. And they were never meant to be a full-time gainful employment. Right. So now the orders are much shorter and that's, yes, so that the orders can get spread around and more shows happen. The math is simple, right? If you divide 24 episodes of a half-hour show by four, you can make four six-episode shows. Yeah. And so all that money, if you just chop it in four quite literally, right? Um, everybody is making 25% of what they would have made if they were on a on a 24-episode right. season of a sitcom, as recently, I would say, as, you know, 2012 or 13. That's right. And the exceptions, uh, like Modern Family and The Big Bang Theory still exist, but they're now the exceptions rather than the rules. And now there are, if you're talking about streaming shows or shows on streaming services, no residuals. That's right, because a show isn't going to repeat if it's always available. And so what you get is what you get. And it's easy around now. Even I can start rolling my eyes and go like, oh, residuals, cry me a river. But what those residuals did, that extra money coming in, would carry an actor or a writer in the times when you don't have something. So let's look at the career of somebody who, say, worked on 
oh, I don't know, say uh, b- b- The New Adventures of Old Christine, right? You write on that show for, call it five, six years. You rise up in the ranks a little bit, you do pretty well, and you get uh, residuals once that show goes into syndication. And then you don't work again, let's say, until uh, what's a comparable show there? Uh, 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 I don't know, The Bee in Apartment 23. Sure, yeah. Don't trust the beat. So great. So you sign on to that show. Uh, okay, now I have a job again for the first time in four years. Oh, whoop. Don't trust the beat in Apartment 23. Only went two seasons. Not enough for syndication. Now you're out of work again. Mm-hmm. So part of what those residuals do is they had created a a, a safety net, like yeah. a, a, a basket of, of cash that you are meant to dip into in those fallow periods. The the numbers that writers and actors make seem to look very good until you recognize that you are sort of meant to pay yourself over many years with yeah. them instead of, you know, there's always the people who are working constantly, but there's a lot of people who aren't. So some of these issues, and we don't need to go into another two-hour conversation about this, but some of these issues were what led to the writer strike in 2008. Like residuals were a major issue yep. about the writer's strike. And also, uh, yeah, it was the beginning of the internet and uh, DVD sort of shows on DVDs had a blip uh, that was a big moneymaker for a hot minute. And yeah, writers were like, what's going to happen to yep. us going forward? Because nobody conceived of that these would exist when the last deal had been struck. That's right. So that's why I really wanted to talk about it before the year ended, because this is the 10th anniversary of that strike. That's right. I remember talking to you during that strike. I remember talking to other friends of ours who are screenwriters. Do you cross the picket line? Where's the job going to come from? Like, after this is over, where's the work coming from? One of the things that was up for negotiation, too, is now I want you to sort of talk about this more in depth, that that clause or that stipulation that writers weren't allowed, like let's say they were writing on a 10-episode series on HBO and they were held to, you can't take another fucking job while we're deciding if we're going to renew. Yeah, that is a uh, a thing that existed. They call it first right of refusal. Yeah. Uh, and so different contracts would look different ways, but that's exactly right. So uh, the show I reference for HBO all the time is Big Love because I feel as though Big Love missed out on peak TV. If it was made today, it would have been a major, major hit. But as it was, it was an also ran. It was not a big headline maker, right? So they make Big Love, I think they made 13, over five, like 13 episodes, uh, five seasons apiece. But it doesn't take as long to do 13 episodes. So you're off for longer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you are technically, if they want to bring you back, you're under contract to that show, which means you can't go do something else. No. Uh, maybe you could if you could fit it in and if it didn't compete. You know, conceivably you could go and write on Zoe 101 in the off season, but Zoe 101 doesn't want to hire you if you're then going to leave. Yep. Uh, so you're essentially sitting on your hands or trying to write a movie or trying to do something else in the meantime while they wait to decide if the show comes back. And if it doesn't come back, uh, then 
when you find out, which you're always the last to know, like the, the, the things that you hear sometimes about actors finding out their shows are canceled, like at restaurants or on the news. Yeah. That's very true. Like that's a known thing. Uh, it's not like you can be planning your next move. It's always musical chairs and everybody finding out what got picked up, who is vacating a space for something else because they got a show and et cetera, all happens in a matter of weeks. So it seems like it's a pretty volatile time that the measures that were put in place when the writer's strike was resolved in 2008 have been a temporary band-aid that there are some issues that have yet to be resolved or are now coming up anew, um, and it's affecting, you know, as this article says, there are the all-star rock star writers who are getting huge deals. Right. And there, and that includes not just the half dozen that we could list right here, like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy, but another echelon of, call it, 200 writers who you don't know who are under massive deals and will continue to uh, pitch shows under an umbrella of a show that will keep them going for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But then thousands and thousands of what they consider middle-class writers who are living in a gig economy, Mm -hmm. who talk about the unpredictability and volatility of this business because of institutionalized or increasingly institutionalized measures that are being put in place by the major players like Netflix, like um, Amazon, um, and the streaming services who are dishing out big money for certain things and getting major headlines for that, but kind of nickel and diming in other ways. Right. Like, so for example, Netflix can, everybody wants to work at Netflix. That's the dream. It is... Inside baseball and outside it, Netflix will let you do what you want to do creatively. If they buy your show, and that's a big if, they're going to let you do what you're going to do. It's the place to work. But because everybody wants to work there, it's a different version of a million girls would kill for this job. They can pay whatever they want to. You'd think that because they were so successful, but they'll be like, no, we're going to pay you whatever we want because we're busy giving Shonda Rhimes nine figures, right? Yep. And then the trickle-down effect is that say you sell a show or work on a show as a mid-level kind of work-a-day writer on Stars or on, you know, TNT or any of the millions of places that are making scripted, they go, well, we can't pay more. We're not fucking Netflix. Like, we don't have that kind of money. Right. And so across the board, there are fewer opportunities to kind of band together. Like, remember that thing where the Friends cast banded together and they said, we all make the same money? That worked partly because NBC was desperate not to lose their big show. They didn't want to lose their big stars. They had that kind of stranglehold. But nobody, except maybe for Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy, has that kind of stranglehold anymore. And so this is true for actors as well, right? Like, if you were an actor who appeared on every other episode of a 24-episode show, um, you probably made a decent rate and you ranked on the call sheet. And maybe you could even be on two shows at once doing that same kind of thing. But it's not as possible now because you don't get to build up that much notoriety because you're not on 22 episodes of a show. You're on six, which blink and you miss it. 
it used to be that people in the industry on both sides said, oh yeah, that show, Poldark or Bojack or anything else you can think of. Oh yeah, I got to watch that. And now it's just people going, oh, I wish I had time to watch that show. Nobody is watching everything. Yeah. Nobody knows all the things. So if you've, even if you've had a big deal star turn on something, it's not like anybody has seen it. And you can be hustling for the next job a lot sooner than you think. Well, it it is, as you said, it's not just for the writers, it's actors too. And you're going to get the marquee actors, the marquee actors who are the equivalent of the marquee writers like the Shonda Rhimes and the Ryan Murphys. But then you're going to get the like yeoman actors, for lack of a better expression, right? Sure. Like the ones who guest star from show to show to show and their income is not like a per episode 100,000, but it's like a job. It's a job. Absolutely. And it's a job that maybe pays pretty well while you're working, but everything stops while you're not working, right? Well, they cite the example of Alison Becker who said, you know, when I was number five on the call sheet on a network show, I actually was paid fairly. Mm-hmm. Fairly enough for me to give the cut to my manager and my publicist and my agent. And, and we've talked about that, but just in what you're saying, that cut is already about 40%. Yeah, exactly. And um, and then I, my take-home can allow me to pay my rent and I can eat and pay for my car and… Feel secure. Feel secure. Now, at Netflix, when I'm number five on the call sheet, they're paying me a day rate. Right. They're not paying me what I was used to being paid because… Essentially, Netflix is, by the assertion of these people writing this article, or at least speaking to Fast Company for this article, Netflix is changing the rules. That's right. And what a day rate means, literally, is you're paid on the days that you are there. You're not paid as a main cast member of the show. So if I'm number five on the call sheet on uh, again, give me a recent past. If I'm number five on the call sheet on, say, The Sopranos, yeah. let's say, that means I probably appear in the opening credits. So I get a fee for every episode, whether I'm in the episode or not, or a season fee, because that's part of the deal. I'm part of what sells the show. Even though she's number five on the call sheet, if she's not in the opening credits, if she's a day rate, then it's like, well, we don't need this show. We don't need her. And so there's not that overarching payment there. So where is this going, Duanna? Like, we're talking about, you know, what I really like about this article is it says that um, for writers, they were long the gig economy before the gig economy actually became a thing um, in Hollywood. Um, I thought that was a really clever way of putting it. But, you know, for people in your industry who are, trying to write on shows, who are looking to pitch shows for the yeoman actor out there. Where is this heading? We are in peak TV. Netflix is like more projects, more projects. Apple is about to launch their own network. And yet it does seem like people are working harder for less money. Right. And I think that's where it's heading. I mean, this is kind of the capitalization of an industry that's always been about big money on the surface. People love to talk about Julia Roberts making $20 million or, uh, you know, Nicole Kidman or whomever. But Julia Roberts is a great example. Uh, when's the last time she made a $20 million movie? Like, it was a long time ago. That money 
carried her through a long period of time. I think what it is, is entertainment and working in entertainment is more accessible than ever, but because it's more accessible than ever, because it's easier than ever to get in and because you can legitimately make a YouTube series from your living room and become Issa Rae, that's a simplification, but it's legitimate, uh, it's no longer going to be the lucrative world that it once was. And it happens from both ends. Because it's easier to get into, it's going to be, you know, there's and there's more opportunities, there's less money, which I guess is democratic. Uh, it's also happening that more and more people want to be involved in a way that is not allowing entry. Like one of the things that happens is that, for example, because there are shorter runs of shows, there's not enough time to train a young person to come up to speed. So a writing room for only six episodes of a show is staffed with all experienced writers. So if you're a young person, it's harder and harder for you to get into the room. And Vanity Fair did a great article about this a month or so ago about uh, essentially the end of the TV writing room as we know it, which used to be a really known training ground. And then, and then, the my next point is one that makes me full of love, but also full of rage, um, with all the revivals coming back, which by the way, are going to employ mostly people who were around the first time yeah. in order to keep the spirit of the series alive. Uh, one of the ones I was most excited about, of course, is the revival of Veronica Mars, which is super exciting. Um, so Veronica Mars has, uh, Rob Thomas, the creator back, mm -hmm. and I believe his right hand, uh, Diane Ruggiero for the Hulu resurrection. And guess who else is in the writer's room? I know. Like this, <laughs> this was so crazy. Guys, here's one of the writers, like one of the mid-level writers who's just, you know, a work-a-day writer. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> that is my job, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you have that job. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not I, – I feel different ways about it. Like on the one hand, it's nonsense that he – is in a writing room and yeah, taking a job that probably will pay, you know, a hundred and some odd grand to, uh, from somebody who could use it and where he really doesn't need it. On the other hand, we've long complained about entertainment being kind of a closed door of mostly Harvard and other Ivy League grads. So the diversification of it from that perspective is exciting. Uh, yeah, it's just what we're gaining in diversification and the kinds of shows we never used to see. We are losing in the entertainment industry being the kind of place where you can make a living the, and a living where you can plan for the unpredictability that's always been there. You know, there is a, I mean, it's not an exact parallel, but there are similarities between what you're saying and, for example, print writing. Oh, Absolutely, there are similarities. It's a hundred percent. So, as so in the past with print writing, if you wrote for a newspaper or a magazine, it used to be that you were paid per word. That was the job, yeah. And you would be a staff writer, sure. And so that was a certain stability, right? You'd mm -hmm. be a staff writer, a staff reporter. You'd have a set income with benefits, um, but. Even if you were a freelancer, an established freelancer, someone who, um, you know, was excellent, excelled at long-form pieces, you uh, cut your teeth 
in a newsroom, in a publication, you had proper training, all that. You could freelance your services for, I don't know, as many as like $3 a word, $5 a word, Well, the, the 1,000 word pieces, right? The one that's notorious is uh, Carrie Bradshaw in Sex and the City getting paid $4 a word at Vogue in what would have been 2002 or three. So if it's a thousand word piece, that's four grand, which, you know, ostensibly she has something else to do that month besides write that. So she's doing okay. And at $4 a word, she also worked with an experienced editor. Right. Right. So you are producing work, your work is getting edited, which ostensibly means it's being improved and the published piece goes out, there's a standard. That money and that rate does not exist anymore. No. I mean, sure, like maybe if, I don't know, if Angelina Jolie wanted to contribute a piece, then she could maybe ask per word. She doesn't need it though, so she wouldn't. It would be an op-ed. But Almost nobody, I don't care who you are, can walk into, I don't know, fucking wherever and be like, hey, I'm going to, I'm pitching this amazing piece for you and you're going to pay me $4 a word. No. No. And they don't do it because there's not the the money in it and there's not really the notoriety in the same way, right? Yeah. Like you're bringing up Angelina Jolie is interesting because what happened in TV and the reason it kind of changed was partly because of how poorly movies were doing. Movies were doing poorly. Nobody, ticket sales were slouchy for sort of mid-range movies. So all these people who had written all these great movies were like, I guess I'm going to TV where there appears to be work. The one who comes to mind right now is Aileen Brosh McKenna, who wrote a bunch of movies that you knew and loved uh, The Devil Wears Prada and 27 Dresses and Morning Glory and We Got a Zoo and then moved into TV and collaborated with Rachel Bloom on My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a hit for the CW, but which would have been unthinkable for a kind of blockbuster machine the way she was uh, 10 years ago. But TV had more opportunities, movie had more and more restrictions, And I feel that print is the same, which is to say print used to have all kinds of opportunities. The rise of internet journalism meant that print wasn't the only game in town. It made it easier to get into, but there was less money to go around. And suddenly what used to be a viable career is now, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a punchline in terms of journalists talking about how they make a living anymore. There's fewer and fewer who are like, yeah, this is a comfortable, viable way to live. And yet, like, the love in here is that, like, just like TV and peak TV, where there's so much great TV because of a breakout in what was the old guard, um, has been so enjoyable for all of us on the internet. So many great writers found their rise on the internet. Like, our fave, Roxane Gay, owes a lot of her um, exposure and opportunities to finding a voice online. Absolutely. And, you know, the the best book I have read so far this year uh, is the memoir All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung. It's incredible. She started as barely out of school working on The Toast, uh, which was the humor essay site 
started by Daniel Mallory Ortberg and Nicole Cliff. And it, it, you know, she is now like arguably one of the best sellers of the year. So it's, it's finding still the great people. There will always be content. It's just whether or not making that content, which takes the same amount of time it always did, is sustainable as a career in and of itself. Well, as Roxanne herself has said, if you follow her on Twitter, if you have, you know, followed her commentary, listened to her speak, it doesn't mean, though, that writing itself should be devalued. You know, she herself has said, like, yeah, the internet has been great. It has found great voices. It has offered people a training ground. It has given people who may not have been able to go through the doors of the old guard an opportunity to write. That said, the internet also in many ways has at the same time, just as we're discussing here in this Fast Company article with the proliferation of streaming, has in a way devalued or made it a lot harder to get the same value for the input and output that you're putting out there. Right. And that's the you who is the creator because, of course, the owners of the big media conglomerates that everybody works works for are doing better than ever, mm-hmm. right? So it's, yes, it's about the the middle classing of the media class, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, where it used to be that, yeah, it was harder to get in, but you you were more assured than you are now. I don't think there are a lot of people, though, who would step aside from creating as a whole. Uh, I think it's hard. Often the joke is, well, what else could we do? Like a lot of people who work in the media in content creation in one way or another don't have transferable skills. You can't walk into a, a marketing job and be like, yeah, 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 I understand decks. No, nobody <laughs> understands decks at all. Um, so I think it's often about being adaptable and changeable and becoming, as the article indicates, more and more of a jack of all trades. We do this podcast, for example, as a labor of love, but I think the rise in podcasts has been partly because there were people looking for another outlet and people who saw that there was a way to to create a business model there. So yeah, I think it's going to be about people uh, cobbling many gigs to continue in the gig economy rather than a bounce back that's going to make it the golden days that it once was. Well, as you mentioned podcasts, there are some writers here who are talking about the fact that they've had to diversify their output creatively by doing podcasts. They're not just writing shows anymore. I mean, and so many people, um, I just listened to, I think it was Phoebe Robinson who was on Ira Madison's podcast, Keep It, who was like, yeah, you know, I did this, I write books. I also do Two Dope Queens. Um, I'm also acting. Like, everybody is doing everything. Right. And that's the flip side. Even Alec Baldwin has a podcast. And that's the flip side of the fun, right? Like, you get to do a lot of other things. That used to be the complaint. This was the, like, uh, high-class complaint on Dawson's Creek. The actors who were on it were in Wilmington, North Carolina, and they were whining because they were far away and they couldn't audition for movies because it was also before, like, self-tapes existed. Yeah. Um. And they were so busy all the time that they couldn't do other things. So that's the flip side. You can do a lot more things and have a lot more creative outlets and do some stuff for money and some stuff because you love it. But uh, yeah, it's a different game for sure. Find time to sleep, everybody, if you can. And of course, let us know what 
uh, gig economy looks like in your industry. Everything's being outsourced and changed and people are contractors and sometimes it looks like no benefits or hot desking or whatever it is. Tell us if there's an angle that is happening in your workplace or your industry because we always want to know. And our final story came up today because of how angry you were last week. Well, once again, I want to say that you conned me about the Americans luring me with the sex. There was more stress than sex. However, this conversation about sex is way more fun. Right. I, you know, there, there's been some thank you supporters out there who wrote to Elaine saying, yes, there's lots of sex. No, they're so, they're, listen, you missed the point. You're like, it's a great show. That is not what I was complaining about. I was complaining about the sex. So what's happened in the meantime, of course, is that this has been on my mind. And then there have been a number of articles uh, that have made me think of you and your rant looking for sex. So uh, Netflix launched Wanderlust here in North America after it premiered in the UK a few weeks ago. And there had been articles in the UK about how sexy it was, how scandalous. I was really expecting something that was, you know, I, I was thinking like Skins. Remember Skins' yeah. original recipe? Yeah. That's the level I was expecting. It is not that level of sex scene. It's fine no. and the show is good, but it's not that. No, um, I, I watched the first episode. There's some sexual activity, but it's not like… It's not graphic. It, it didn't meet the fucking scandal that, you know, those tight asses in the UK were all tight assy about. They were quite grumpy about it. Um, and then there was an article this week uh, talking about how in the wake of Me Too, HBO and I think other networks are following suit are appointing intimacy coordinators, uh, and their jobs are to oversee the filming of sex scenes on any given series to make sure that people are being safe and protected and nobody feels taken advantage of. Okay. So first of all, the, I just want to like give a tip of the hat, a salute to the, I don't know, what is, what do we want to call this person? The... Uh, Oprah of intimacy coordinators, like essentially the first official one who's made, been made public. Um, I want to name her because when you talk about show your work, what this woman has done is through her work that was organic, that was involved, and that was um, fulfilling a need, she has just created a new a brand new job. Like, she she literally created a new title. Okay, so tell us about her. Tell us who we're talking about. Okay, so we're talking... Her name is Alicia Rodas. Mm -hmm. She is the intimacy coordinator who works on The Deuce. Mm -hmm. And how this happened was Emily Mead, who's an actor on The Deuce, after, uh, you know, last year and the, like, the mainstream proliferation of Me Too, um, she was like, listen, I do all these sex scenes, I feel vulnerable, and there should be on set and off set a liaison to work with me and work with the producers and work with the writers to make sure that everything is coordinated, my comfort is prioritized, 
that comfort meets the needs of the story and everybody's happy. First of all, duh. <laughs> like, you would think, but okay, we're past that now. We don't want to get caught up in that. But so they found Alicia Rodas, who for many years has been doing this on Broadway, who has worked with um, mental health advocacy groups, who has worked with assault advocacy groups, who has done her research and understands uh, sexual assault, understands safety in the workplace, who has been holding workshops and workshopping how to perform intimacy in a way that respects everybody who's involved and also allows you to produce great content. So they brought her on. Because she had a nonprofit, and that's where they found her. That's right. That she created called Intimacy Directors International. And can I just say as somebody who… Oh, my God. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I have uh, sometimes run into trouble with titles and with being clever instead of clear. Intimacy Directors International. It tells you everything you need to know. Yes. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And so is the title of Intimacy Coordinator. I have no doubt what she does on the deuce. She coordinates the intimacy. Right. Like, it's, it's so anyway, her job on the deuce, it's fascinating. She reads through the script. She reviews Emily and other people's scenes with them. And then on the day of shooting, she is there making sure that when they're shooting, nobody is compromised. Nobody feels uncomfortable. Some of that is... Um, as considerate as providing tissues, providing a layer, a barrier between the body parts of the actors involved. Then she goes and stands behind the monitors. She watches what happens on the monitors. Then she does check-ins with the actors. Are you okay with what just happened? Let's set up for the next scene. If there's something that's not right, she will be the liaison. She will be the one to go to the director and say, I don't think it's going to work out this way so that the actor doesn't have to do it. So what I think we should do is talk about how sex scenes go and have gone so that we understand sort of where she's now the new person. Because this is unheard of. Uh, I have supervised some sex scenes, not a ton. I have supervised some action sequences. And this article makes a real clear distinction that every time there are action sequences, there are fight coordinators on set to tell everybody what the moves are going to be. There are stunt coordinators to make sure that you're not going to get hurt. I last year worked on a show that I created where there was a small stunt. Uh, there was a small stunt for one performer and there were at least eight people standing around two weeks beforehand working hard to figure out how it was going to go and that everybody was going to be safe. And until now, nothing like that existed for a sex scene. No. So it would be written. And, you know, for people who are sitting there going, why does this need to exist at all? Why do we have to have the sex at all? Because sex is a part of life. If you're having it, if you're not having it, if you have feelings about it, we're invested in the idea of people having dramatic lives on television or on film. That's why we watch them. So that's why we need this. So first the scene is written. Great. Does it accomplish what we want to do? Sure thing. Then we're going to cast the person if they're not already a part of the cast. So then there's an audition and the person has to be told, hey, there's going to be nudity or there will be underwear shots or mm -hmm. whatever. So already that's a situation that some actors will count themselves into or out of. And a lot of actors 
would count themselves out of situations where they don't know how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. They don't know who the director is going to be or how that person is about a sex scene yep. or how they're going to feel in that moment. Fine. You cast somebody. Then somebody from the creative department, which maybe it's me or maybe it's some other writer who's a, you know, a dude or a woman, if that's what makes you uncomfortable or whatever, is going down to wardrobe to see what kind of lingerie or undress or whatever Mm -hmm. we're going to see the people in and approving it. So now at all those steps, this intimacy coordinator is also going to be there and say, you know, and I believe that she's going to be a part of the team. You know what, Duanna? She doesn't feel great in this outfit. And everybody said, okay, what would she like? You know, it's just if the color wasn't red or if it was like, if it was something, okay, do we have something else? We say to the wardrobe coordinator, do we have a green or a purple or something less uh, aggressive. Yeah. Um, And she says, yes, sure. And then we make that work. And the reason that that extra exchange, which takes five extra minutes, makes a difference is because the performer doesn't necessarily want to say to me, hey, I don't like this. Because what if I go back and say, okay, you're, you're out of the next episode? I would never. But this is the fear. Yes. Right? Then you go on to a set and, as you say, there are often like cloths and things between people. Like this is the part where I'm expecting you to pull up uh, diagrams and, and, (laughs) you know, to zoom into things. Um, But yeah, it's a lot of like, put your mouth here, do this, this is what you need, right? Yep. Um, If you're lucky almost, there is some coordination. Very famously on movie sets and on TV shows – there are what they call improvised scenes. Uh-huh. The most, perhaps the most famous of this is, and this caused a controversy last year, probably one of the most well-known erotic films, Last Tango in Paris. There is a scene, it's referred to as the butter scene. And Marlon Brando is um, in a scene with Maria Schneider. She's face down and he like starts rubbing her with butter. Um, She said later that she was not told, was not in the script, that Marlon and the director sprung that on her while they were rolling. Yeah, that that the director had pulled Marlon Brando aside and said, you know what you should do is do this. Yeah. And try this and see what happens, which... It's not the same as Richard Gere snapping the jewelry box on Julia Roberts's hand and eliciting a giggle in Pretty Woman. This is tantamount to not just in 2018, but by the standards of the day back then, sexual assault. Right, because it's you're vulnerable. You are you're being intimate and being, you know, I always feel bad for even really experienced actors when they have to uh, experience physical pleasure on camera because you're making yourself very vulnerable and really blurring the lines between who you are and the character are, mm-hmm. uh, who you are and the character is, it's difficult. Um, so yeah, that was a violation even then for sure. Uh, but I guess what I mean is that even on sets where everybody is supposedly on the up and up and doing fine, it can feel really embarrassing. It can feel really weird, Right. I mean, you know, we've heard this story, but imagine you're making out with somebody who you're supposed to be making out with, and you've heard male actors say this, right? Like, I'm sorry if I get excited, and I'm sorry if I don't, like, yeah, 
that's a thing. And you're there. You would know as an actress one way or the other. Right. So part of, of what Alicia and her team are doing is uh, talking through that stuff and preventing that stuff from becoming a problem. Not that there aren't still intimacy things and, yeah. and whatever. And I'm sure half the time she's like, who wants mints? Um, but it's, but preventing it from becoming a problem or a situation where somebody is uncomfortable and doesn't feel they can say so. Well, showrunner, the Deuces showrunner, David Simon, has now said to Rolling Stone, he said it in September, that he would never work without an intimacy coordinator again. So Alicia Rodas has made herself invaluable and has made this job title now almost invaluable, at least to someone like a showrunner like David Simon. Um, it's It's a big thing to say. Because now HBO has decided that on all of their shows, they would have the title, like a budget line item Mm -hmm. for an intimacy coordinator across the board. And what I love about that is not just that they're doing it, but the way this article is written. And look, I have no uh, illusions about this article for Rolling Stone. I guarantee you somebody at HBO publicity mm-hmm. called up Rolling Stone and said, Hey, this is a story for you. Why don't you do this? It's a bit of PR, but I don't care that it's PR because it's working. And the reason I know is because there have been situations on sets since time began where whoever's supposed to be there to do things on behalf of the actors or whatever, famously tutors for young people are overridden by the director, right? The director is the king on the set on the day, and they are overridden by that person. But the way she's talking here, it's very clear that it's been made clear to all the directors, work with this woman, work with your intimacy coordinator. Do not let us hear that you are causing a problem um, because she's in the thick of it. She talks about, like, uh, there's a paragraph here that's amazing Uh, It says, Rodas pays attention to the way people talk about sexual acts on set. Quote, a director can be like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you grab her tits. And it's that moment of, hmm, we're at work, so I'm not going to say he fucks her. Instead, I'll say, let's talk about how we create this aggressive motion. I reframe the wording so the actors know what they're physically doing. Uh Uh-huh. And here is what's so important about that quote. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, but it's the word fucks. If this woman was a school barm, if she was acting, if she said, hmm, we're at work, let's not make the suggestion of intimacy so uh, so bald or whatever, everybody would be like, get out of here. Sometimes on a show, it, the sentiment is he fucks her, yeah. right? She knows that. She knows that that's what the show needs. And she's as much there for the story as she yes. is for the performers. And that is what's making it clear to me that this is going to work. Yeah. That she gets it. She is not a, a prissy school marm who's no. like, don't please be touching. Yeah. <laughs> no. And what I, I love that part in it where she's like, no, no, we're not going to speak like that. We're going, but we're not going to take away from the intensity or the aggression of that scene. I understand what you want to convey in the story with these specific characters, but we don't have to... We don't have to characterize it like that. We don't have to cheapen it in that sense. And we don't have to leave it up to the actor's interpretation. I think sometimes there are directors who, there's another part here where they say, a director will say, you know what, just whatever you guys are comfortable with. It's like, well, 
Well, who? Who yeah. is comfortable? Who am with- I? Me, the real person? Yes. Yeah. Or the actor? Or, and are we both comfortable with what? Because, yeah. you know, and the director feeling awkward about that is not going to be overly specific. Uh, so she's the one saying, okay, so is this aggressive? Okay, so when he first starts to move on her, you want him to be as aggressive as possible in all the spots he can reach? Yes, we want to see that he he goes right to her breasts, to her crotch, that he's very aggressive, whatever. Even having that conversation, even if all the movements are the same as they would have been, now they're all out in the open. Everybody's agreeing to them or with Alicia Rodas there says, can we stay away from this area for some reason. You know, I have a friend who's a performer who talked one time, you'll love this story, Okay, about uh, she was in a scene where she was going to be lying down all day. Not a sex scene, actually, but a a vulnerable scene. And she had her period. And so she said to, you know, a wardrobe person, I'm terrified that I'm going to start leaking on camera and I need you to be paying attention for me. And she had that person who was going to be there standing by watching for that specific thing. So yes, this is still a business where staring between somebody's legs is a job. Yeah. Um, but until now, there wasn't that same person mm-hmm. uh, to say to somebody, you know what, I feel really weird or I'm I'm sensitive here on my breasts today and can you ask them to stay towards the left or whatever it is. That there, That didn't exist before and I know a lot of people, male and female, who would cut off their hands before they had that conversation with the director. So it just, I'm impressed because it doesn't seem to be making it less good. It's just making the same scenes that much more clear and that much more safe. And what's exciting is that she is very clear about the fact that because she's getting more work, she not only works on The Deuce, but she's working on several other shows. I think she's going to be working with Drake on his show. She is too busy for one person and for her work. So she's training more people. So again, we have an industry spinoff. There is now like a proper, not just a job title on all of HBO's sex scenes, but there is an industry, there is a need now for intimacy coordinators. And of course, if HBO is doing this, then if I am a high-level person who leaves there and goes on to another show, like David Simon is talking about, but like other performers or writers can they're going to be able to demand, hey, we had that over at HBO, Netflix, so what are you going to do about it, Amazon? Well, even the actors. Emily Mead was the one who requested this. And so we are hearing about Time's Up. They have membership meetings quite regularly. I'm imagining that these actors are going into their Time's Up meetings saying, hey, uh, I asked for this on the deuce. HBO has now instituted this across all sex scenes across their platform. Um, why isn't this an industry-wide standard? Netflix should be following suit. Any sex scenes filmed on any Netflix production, Amazon, Hulu, whatever, network, this and that and the other. And now, again, you have people who are camera operators, grips, script supervisors, wardrobe consultants, hair and makeup, and an entire industry of intimacy coordinators. It's a career now. Absolutely. It's filling a need that we didn't know we could fill and that absolutely needed to be filled. It's, you know why it's exciting too, is that it's not every day that we discover and create a new job. You know what I mean? I do, but I think the times when it works like this, when it goes from zero to a bustling business that needs to hire more people, 
it's because somebody recognized a need because they saw it more like, hey, you know what we need is a this and I can be that thing. Well done, Alicia Rodas. Like <laughs> the pioneer intimacy coordinator, like, I don't know, claps to you. Absolutely. That's like the work of the week. I am aroused. Right. So now you're going to think of Alicia when you're watching your favorites. Get I it love on. it. It's so fucking sexy. You made your own job, creating a new job, period, in the entertainment industry. It's super exciting. Congratulations. And on that note, thank you so much for listening, for your tweets, for your emails, and for every which way that you yelled at Lainey to keep watching The Americans because it's great and sexy. And we'd love to hear about you if you created your own job in your company, if you assessed a need and actually designed a brand new description in the organization, share that with us. It's, we find that so hot. We want to share it with other people. We want to put your best practice out there so that other people can do the same. Um, so keep sending us your feedback on Twitter, on Instagram, over email. Don't forget to give us a review wherever you find your podcast. It helps people find us. Uh, take a second to give a shout out to Paco.May on Instagram, who designed our awesome new artwork. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.